everyone. You are listening to Composer Code, episode 16. As always, I'm Matt Kenyon, and it's just, it's a delight to be here with you all today. And it was an absolute delight to speak to this podcast guest, Grant Kirkhope, who is, uh, I don't know, I guess he's, he's a legend. I mean, is it safe to say that? I mean, the dude did Banjo-Kazooie, he did Banjo-Tooie, he did, oh, I don't know, Goldeneye 007, hello, Uh, Ukulele, Viva Pinata, Kingdoms of Amalur, and a bunch of other stuff that we talk about. He's just such a nice guy. I mean, he's just, I just wanted to keep talking to him. He's so cool. We talked about his early days at Rare um, and what the culture of that company was like when they were making sort of the uh, the golden age nostalgic games that we all know and love. We talked a little bit about the differences of being an in-house composer and a freelance composer. So if that's something you're thinking about, you definitely don't want to miss that conversation. He told me a little bit about his composition process, how he thinks about music, how he begins a piece of music, which was fascinating and very practical. We talk about some of our favorite influences, how he listened to the Harry Potter soundtrack thousands and thousands of times on his commute to work, and he's hilarious. I think we all know this by now, but he's just like one of the funniest people I've ever talked to. He told a story about meeting Shigeru Miyamoto that almost had me falling out of my chair, so you definitely are going to want to stick around for that. I just want to give a shout out to my uh, patrons again for supporting the show. Um, Zamka and Murator, my top tier patrons, thank you so much. You guys are amazing. I tried to incorporate some of your questions into the show. If you are interested in learning more about what we're doing there, go ahead and go to patreon.com slash composer code. But without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Grant Kirko. But so Grant, I want to I want to say before we begin, from everything that I've read and watched about you, it seems to be a badge of honor to have the piss taken out of you by Grant Kirkhope. So if at <laughs> I just want to give you the freedom that if at any point in this interview you see an opportunity to take the piss out of me, I would be greatly honored by that. All right, I shall uh, I shall look for those moments. <laughs> okay. No, no pressure, but you know, if it if, if it arises, uh, you know, that would be great. So yeah, like- I, just, I like to be like, I'm not, I'm not that, I hate that ego thing. Right? I hate that whole ego thing. I don't like it at all. So yeah. I just like to be me. So that means taking the piss. That's what I'll do. I just think I, I can't stand people who try to be something that they're not. Like I'm just a bloke that writes tunes, right? That's it. I imagine that must be hard because in LA, you know, there's egos all over the place, you know, it yeah, might be hard. Is, I mean, I, I, honestly, I've not met too many of those. Uh, I mean, I've, there's, a, there's a couple. They're not too many. And I usually find the people that have got the egos are the ones that aren't very good. And the guys that are super humble are the guys that are really good. So well, that's, that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. Well, it seems so far. Right. <laughs> so I, I have seen in multiple interviews that you grew up saying that you loved metal. You were really influenced by metal growing up. Well, I'm curious. Even now, not just then, now. Yeah. What kind of bands were you listening to? Because, you know, metal today obviously looks very different than like metal a few decades ago, like Guns N' Roses or something. Yeah. No. Yeah. So like before that, even cause I'm old, right? So like when I, my first kind of proper bands that, you know, after you get to your pop phase, when you're like a, you know, a t- just a, a young kid, were like, it was always ACDC and Queen for me. Nice. So it was ACDC's High Voltage first album and Queen, Sheer Heart Attack. They were the two records that kind of taught me to play guitar. So, I mean, I, and I bought every Queen album, I think they're the only band that I bought every single album off. I think even Hot Space, wow. no one bought. I bought All Wears. And I bought a lot of ACDC stuff. 
Um, but I kind of, I, I love Bon Scott, right? So even though Brian Johnson is fantastic, um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I can't get past Bon Scott. He's just a man for me. Like his vocals are so dirty and he's such a character and, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm that I'm that guy that's that's going to go. Oh, I like it when it was old, you know. But I just do. I like I like Bon Scott better. But Brian Johnson's obviously really good and also really down to earth. Geordie blokes. I like to see him talking. He's great. Um, and the whole Queen thing, like you know, like Brian May guitar playing, kind of taught me everything about guitar playing. Like you know, I tried to play like him. I, I couldn't quite manage it at the time. You know, I remember learning the solo to Killer Queen and, and yeah. Um, but after that, I kind of guess I went a bit more. Um, like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Van Halen. Nice. Uh, I got really into Queen's right really heavily later on. I, I, I thought Queen's right were great. And right now, I'm really loving Nightwish right now. So I've only really, even though I knew of Nightwish years ago, I never really listened to them, but I love mm-hmm. them now. Um, and it's weird that um, I'm, I'm really bad at liking new music, right? I'm always bad like that. And then people, someone says to me, it's something great, I won't listen to it on purpose. I just won't, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm such a pain in the ass like that. So right. To, just to get into Nightwish, but I really like them now. I think they're brilliant. Uh, same with Queensryche, too. I, 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 you know, I took a long time to get into them, and I, I just got obsessed by it. But yeah. I don't really go as far as sort of Operation Minecraft. Empire's all right, but I, Operation Minecraft, to that point, I think it's great. Rage for All is one of my favourite albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know, and I did dabble a bit in the kind of Limp Biscuity, you know, thing and Linkin Park a little bit, but not so much. Right. Um, I tried, you know, but it's not really for me. Yeah, uh, I guess I'm, I'm old. So I'm an old school rocker, right? Those old bands like Queen, for example, have such a strong emphasis on melody. Yeah, you know, and I think naturally when you listen to bands like that, and I love Queen myself, and like the Beatles naturally and stuff, Led Zeppelin, um, they're so melodic. Even their solos are so melodic. Their guitar solos, the lyrics, everything, uh, the vocals are so melodic. So I think that definitely informed your ability to write such catchy melodies that we know and love today. Well, and also I think as a kid, I was at this strange thing because I was doing the classical thing and then I, I was, and, you know, because I, I was a classically trained trumpet player from like six. Mm-hmm. I started when I was six. So I was going through all that kind of, in, in the UK, they call the associated board exams as somebody great to grade eight. And then, so I was going through all of that and playing in the, in the local orchestras and all that. So I was kind of got that side of it plus the metal side. So it's my two, the two sides of me, right? So I'm not much in the middle. So it was either right. metal or complete orchestra. So it was a bit of a weird thing. So I think that really sculpted how I turned that to write in the end, probably. And I think, you know, listening to a lot, playing a lot of those, you know, I can remember um, I was in the, the North Yorkshire School Symphony Orchestra, which was like a big deal to me then, because that was a whole county. North Yorkshire is a big county. Mm. I remember going to the first time, the first time I got, they had two, two weeks in Scarborough a year. We used to go and stay away for the whole week as kids, you know, and have a really good fun time and play in a big orchestra. It was fantastic. All the best players in the county, you know. And like, you know, getting there the first time and hearing Elgar's Cocaine Overture uh, or, um, I don't know, what else did we play? That after, like Crown Imperial, things that were just so fantastically melodic. Uh, like mm-hmm. Delius, uh, La Calinda, things that, are, that stuck with me forever. Um, Elgar's yeah. Ending of Variations. Like playing those pieces is so melody rich, you know, uh, just, you know, that's, that's what I aspire to. And I'm, yeah. I'm not going to get there, but that's what I aspire to. Well, I think some of the melodies that you have written uh, can definitely be held up against yeah, some of the best melodies in culture, in pop culture, definitely in video games. Um, spe- spe- <laughs> speaking of which, uh, the games that you actually uh, created or worked on, composed for, played a really significant role in my childhood because I was a 90s kid. 
So my mom was militant about the like the teen rating. So I wasn't allowed to play Goldeneye, but I would sneak over to a friend's house and play it. And it blew my mind. But we were just like dumb kids, so we couldn't get past the second level. Right. And then I remember they bought me DK64, which equally blew my mind. And I was obsessed with that. And yeah. I remember the bright yellow cartridge. But my mom, I realize this is about how conservative my mom was growing up, but she made me skip the DK rap because it said this Kong's one hell of a guy at the end. And she wasn't keen on swearing in the house. And and then I realized in Super Smash Bros that they changed it to heck, which yeah. I thought was really funny. So that's my, those are my. That was so weird to us Brits, like, because no one in the in Britain for one second thinks hell's a, a swear word. Like, I know, the, yeah. In England thinks that, and, the, you know, and it never for once crossed our minds that anybody in America would think that. And it was incredible to us to think that people thought it was some kind of curse word. I mean, it's just, you know, in England, it's like, what the bloody hell are you doing? It's like, no one, no one. <laughs> right. But, right. You know, you know, you don't, I think people forget about America that on the, on the, on the edges of America, it's sort of mostly normal, but in the middle, it's, it's still got, still are bits of that super conservative, you know, thing that a lot of people in Europe just don't get because it doesn't really exist there like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was so strange to us to think that people thought hell was a bit of a strange, of a swear word, you know, because Nintendo didn't say to us, never once flagged it to take it out. They didn't never said anything to us about it. Yeah, yeah, that is that is really funny, and I and I was raised in the South, the South right. of America, so that you know that would make sense. Yeah, but yeah, I got that totally. Yeah, so um, so getting a bit geeky uh, in Banjo Kazooie, you had mentioned I think in an interview that, which I thought was super cool, that you had used a tritone that you'd featured tritone in the theme because of Banjo and Kazooie's opposite personalities. Right. Um, and I thought that was really neat and a cool way to kind of tell a story through music theory. And I'm curious if you could maybe unpack that, like what, what you meant by tritone. And also if there are any other stories that you told in your games, maybe through music theory like that. Um, I guess with that one, when I first started doing Banjo-Kazooie, um, you know, we were, it was a platform game and we were, we were trying to beat Mario 64. That was our goal, right? To try to get to that, you know, to that level. And so, when it came to the music, like I knew that there was no point in me trying to write that kind of Nintendo pop jazz that they do because they do it mm -hmm. fantastically well, and I could never get anywhere near what they do. I just, I'm just not that good, you know. So I had to find my own little thing that I thought maybe I can make something sound, you know, different or something. So I kind of hit on that that tritone thing, and it sort of came from um, when I started the game. I, I wrote the, the music, the tune to Click Clock Woods first because mm -hmm. when Dream ended. Tim right. and Greg Mail said to me, right, let's change it to a platform game. Write a platform tune that you think might suit a platform game. So I just, I just thought of a jolly tune, you know, da 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 I just did that right. I did. I had no idea what it was for. So, right. um, and it ended up, when it got to click on what I thought, oh, that fits, but I didn't, I, I wrote it as a general sort of proof of concept that I could write a jolly, because I only did it a little short time, that I could write a, a jolly platform tune, you know. So, um, so I did that and didn't think more about it. So it wasn't really till I came, but I came back to the early levels because uh, after writing some, because I changed the first two tunes, um, Mumbo's Mountain and, and uh, uh, Treasure Trove Cove, because they were originally not tritony. I, mm. I, I didn't get the tritone thing at the start. I didn't get it till later in the game. So, and I kind of got that a little bit from Danny Elfman. So, okay. So when I got to Mad Monster Mansion, 
I wanted to use a dark harmony. So in that, that main sequence is like C minor, A flat minor, C minor, F sharp major. And I kept that, I, I got that sequence from him as well. And I stole that from him as well. Um, a little <laughs> bit of that man movie. <clears throat> so, um, and I wanted a way to, to use a dark harmony that wouldn't scare the kids, you know. <laughs> right, but, right. But I couldn't think of how to do it. And then I was listening to Beetlejuice and it was like, um, pa, um, pa, um, pa, um, pa. and I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. So when I learned that, as long as you keep the, it rhythmically bouncy, mm-hmm. it, you can put as dark chords as you want in there, no other difference, right? Mm, so that, that's interesting. I kind of put that together and thought, oh, yes, yeah, so I could it got some Mad Muscle Manchester start to get that kind of umpa umpa, and I got a little bit dark, and then I went, I kind of went back and looked at the first levels and started reintroducing that kind of triton thing mm-hmm. sort of retro, retroactively. <clears throat> so, um, and it came about from thinking, well, with Banjo Kazooie, the opposite characters, Banjo's a bit of a dumb bear, Kazooie's a wisecracking bird. Mm-hmm. And you know, F sharp, if it's in C, F sharp and C are the furthest points away from it can get in a, in a, in, on, on a keyboard. That's, that's sure. Thing. So I thought, well, let's try to do something with that. So, uh, and it did, I just messed around with it really until I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I, as the levels went on, I, I kind of found, found myself trying to be more oddball as it went along. So, and so when you get to the second game, you get to like, uh, oh, Cuckoo Land. Yeah, that one. Okay, I can so find it and put it in the show notes for sure. I was, just, I was trying to get it like, that kind of got pretty wacky and, I, I, and it's probably quite annoying, really, you know, looking back on it now. But um, so I just try, I used to try and, in my own head, right, I was trying to compose myself, compose myself into a corner and then mm. try to get back from that corner back to the home key by some convoluted nonsensey series of fifths or tritons, whatever it was to get, you know. So right. I was kind of, I used to try to, I always tried to make it wacky like that. And, it, you know, as yeah. I say, it might not sound out to anybody else, but in my head, that's what I was doing. So that was the kind of the thing behind the whole triton thing to try and give it a bit of an, and also the oddball characters. And I felt like the oddball sound of the triton thing really fitted the, the game. And also it gave it a bit of a unique sound that, you know, there wasn't too much other stuff that sounded like that. It wasn't like mm-hmm. it hadn't existed before. There was plenty of guys in the past that used tritons all over the place. Sure. Um, I wasn't by any means the first guy to do it. And, and you know, and I'm, I wouldn't take credit for that because it just isn't me. But I kind of felt at the time, there wasn't too much around like that. So I guess it stuck out. But, you know, you never really know until it comes out and people start to play it. So, you know, it, it could have been a total disaster. People could have gone, oh, this sounds a lot of old rubbish, you know. Um, so I think that, um, you never know. You just cross your fingers over the best. Yeah, I love uh, when you said you you would get yourself into a convoluted situation and then try to get back to the home key. I thought of that too. And it's like, doing that sequence of like, it might have been like dominance to tonics, like all the way back or something like that. Yeah, that cycle of fits to try to get around it and get back. And then, you know, some second dominant would like link to that the main dominant to get back to the home key and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it works. I mean, I think like it never takes you out of the experience of playing banjo kazooie because it's like like what you said it's that bouncy rhythm and so you're doing all these really interesting harmonic things but you're never like whoa that's you know that's jarring it just feels right you know it just feels like the silly antics of banjo and kazooie like a a, you know a perfect score to that yeah and also i think you know it's important to think about the melody too because like you can hide a lot of daft harmony with a with a a not too jumping around melody so the melody Mm, that's a good point yeah if the melody is sort of singable or at least humbleable or whatever, and it's not it's not going like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can disguise what's going on underneath. People don't really notice that part. But, it, but yeah. you, feel, you kind of feel it in your in your bones, if you like. So I think that having a, a melody that was reasonably singable, you could stick anything underneath it, as long as it fitted the chord sequence, obviously, it was in match. You could you'd get away with murder. <laughs> That's what I yeah. 
That's that's really great advice. So in 007, I was listening to the soundtrack and I couldn't help but notice that some of the themes have almost like a 90s hip hop vibe in them, like like the uh, the drum beats in Facility is like, and it's got like that almost like Roland 808. Like it almost sounds like it could have been programmed in a Roland 808. Were you guys listening to a lot of 90s hip hop or where did you kind of in- get those influence for those beats? Because there's some of them are pretty cool. Well, that was because me, me and Graham Norgate did that game together, right? So I guess we probably did music half and half. Then people don't think that I did it or I didn't, like me and mm-hmm. Graham. So, so some of the sounds in the game, he put in the game, some of the sounds out, because he started it off and I took it over and then he finished it off. That's how it kind of worked. Gotcha. So, so he had used, I think, the 707 or the 808 kick drum. And some of the snares, I think, were actually up for 707 or 808. I'm sure they were. So nice. I was just trying to mess around to try to make something sound different. And like after, you know, <clears throat> we got to use the Bond theme. Um, and so I was just trying to find different ways to use it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, uh, you know, you sort of run out of ideas after a while. You, I've done this. I did that kind of the manticore, the, 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 the frigate level, but it's like my fake no more drum beat with the Duran Duran stabs and all that, you know. Right, like, yeah. You know, so you, you tried to find, so I was just trying to find different ways to do stuff. So, you know, I'm a metal fan, right? So hip hop wasn't really my wheelhouse. So I, I you know, I might have heard Rum DMC, you know, with Aerosmith. That's probably it. You know, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, if that was even out, I don't know when that was out. But you know, that's some. You know, I'm, I wasn't into that kind of music at all. So if it mm-hmm. sounds, you know, vaguely presentable, then I'm all the better. You know, so you know, right. so I didn't know what I was doing. So yeah, I guess I was just trying to find something that I thought sounded cool that wasn't just normal to me you know do you think that because you guys were in the uk and in the uk electronic music is more popular than in america at the time that that kind of subtly influenced you or did you not listen to that stuff at all growing up i didn't do it at all but graham Norgate's a huge electronic music fan like he's like gotcha. he to the c64 and the bits and you know not sorry the bits writing chipchi music and all that and he loves that stuff so graham was always into that he still is to this day like to catch mode and much, much heavier bands than that, you know, that I don't even know the name of, you know, so mm-hmm. great, a real big hand in that. I was just, you know, it was my first game, so I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just messing around until I thought something sounded good, and then if it sounded good to me, I thought, well, maybe it might sound good to somebody else, you know, so it was like that. I know some of the limitations on the N64 was was a problem. You guys had to come up with some creative solutions musically. Um, I remember you mentioning that you had to loop the hi-hat, so it was like that... That yeah, it's a, so, it was a symbol, not the hi-hat, the actual so oh, the, Yeah, the symbol. Because yeah. it, it was such a long, it would go, and the decay was so long on a symbol. Mm-hmm. Maybe the time machine just had one sample. So we had to kind of go, just take that bit, and put an envelope on it, so it went, so it sounded dreadful, but that's all we could do. Were there any other sort of tricks or things that you guys had to employ to make the samples fit on the cartridge? Um, well, just, they had to be tiny. So, you know, you'd take, mm. nothing was anywhere approaching CD quality, not even half CD quality. Mm. It was like, your best bet, you might get some things at 16 kilohertz. I mean, CD quality is 44, right? So, and a lot of things were 11 or even 8. So, like, kick drums were at 8 kilohertz because they didn't need a lot of top end. So, a, a bassy sound could be like, you know, cut, all the, cut it all down the smaller you could get. And we just tried to make things you know, sound bearable, you know, it was a very small memory footprint. Plus the yeah. fact, even on the MIDI files, which are tiny, right? Um, we had to keep them under 100K, was it? Something like that. It was tiny. So mm. if you had a drum beat, it was like, dunk, 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 for the entire track, right? Mm. We could take one bar of it and put it at the start of the MIDI file and put a marker either end of it 
So we just leave and give it a, to a save. Our markers were like, it was like CC 102 and CC 104, I think. So, mm. um, and, and we put a number in there. So we say, say loop 44 times. So we could pick, take that one bar and hit the marker and play it 44 times. So that would save you writing it out 44 times. And even though that's tiny, it's saved memory. You know, mm-hmm. physically, the, the, those notes were in the MIDI file anymore. So it's one bar at the start. So it meant if you had to come back and um, rewrite the MIDI file or come back and alter it, it was a real pain in the ass to work out what you'd done because there's little boxes all over the place. Yeah. You, know, you couldn't play it in its entirety. You had to kind of go, that bars, you know, it was a real pain in the ass to do it. So like, even in the MIDI file, you had to cut things right back. When you listen back to the 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 GoldenEye soundtrack or some of the Banjo Kazooie soundtracks, I know for me, I have nostalgic ties to those sounds, even though they're obviously the fidelity is low. Do you have the? Do you sort of accept the nostalgia of like, okay, you know, this was this is pretty cool in hindsight, or do you wish like, man, I wish I could go back and remake it with the technology we have now? No, I think I like it the way it is. People often mm-hmm. ask me that, and I think I, I mean. You know, I'll keep talking about, I'm going to do my own Banjo Kazooie remix album at some point. I'll get around to it, God knows when. Um, but, you know, I just sort of like the way, I'm not happy with the way it sounds really. I, I'm, I, I, you know, I don't think I go back and change anything in my career. I think everything I've done so far, I just leave it the way it is with really. I don't change anything. Um, I think that Banjo Kazooie sounds that way because of the way it is. And yeah. also, I often felt that sometimes when you're, you've got limitations to stuff, uh, it makes you be more inventive with what you have. You have to be more, more creative with it. I think that, you know, these days, you put your one finger on a keyboard, you, get, you can get this great big, huge swathe of noise. It, 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 it's amazing, you know. But mm-hmm. they get so, yeah, all you had was a decent tune and a set of chords. If that was the best thing you could do, you know. So, I guess a lot of the guys I know back then, I feel like they know how to write a good tune because you, you had to do that. And yeah. Also, being rare back then, rare were, rare were obviously you know nearly half owned by Nintendo and massive Nintendo fans. So all the time, you know, Tim Stamper and Greg Mills were saying to me, you know listen to those Mario games, listen to those tunes, you know, that they can listen to those music over and over again, don't get tired of it. You know, you need to do that. You need to be able to write a melody that, or a piece of music that's going to last for a hundred times round on a loop or more than that, you know, mm-hmm. for hours and ends. And, you know, you know, so, so we, we were preached like that. All the, all the rare composers were preached like that all the time. And I think, you know, I'm glad of it now. Uh, I think it's, it was a, a great training to, to, to go through that. Yeah, I think it's like one of those things like uh, Star Wars, for example, shot in 1977. And then every time it was remade, all the fans, there's this giant outcry. I think it's almost like the the 007 and Banjo-Kazooie songs are so tied to the sounds that it's like the nostalgia plus just the the um, the comfort of the N64 sounds, which reminds us of our childhood, makes it just such a great experience to listen back to even now. So obviously you spent a lot of time at Rare and then um, scoring the N64 games we know and love. And now you're sort of on your own and you've kind of been everywhere in between. Um, I think it's super valuable for composers to to talk to people like you because you've been in freelance positions, but you've also been in in-house positions and you've also got to see how the industry for composers has changed, like the indie revolution where anybody can make a game now. Um, what have been some of the biggest changes that you have noticed in the gaming industry, specifically for composers throughout your career? I think composers' lives got harder, I think, for definite, because I think you're expected to do it all now. People want you to write it and to mix it and to master it and to everything, right? You know, unless you've got a big budget where you can get other people to do that for you. And I, I, I don't have that luxury. So I think that, you know, you, you just, you, you have to be, you're expected to be a lot more technical than you used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of these big, giant Hollywood composers have teams of people that do it for them. So they'll do the MIDI file and say, right, you take this away and make it sound great. 
get mm. the National Library in there, make it sound amazing. And these people, these people that just are just media mock-up guys who just do that for a living, you know, and make a lot of money out of it. You know, so I think, I think for someone like me, you have to be, you know, and I'm, I don't think I'm very good at it, but I think you have to get, you have to be prepared to do that. So I think like for, like for Mario Rabbids, you know, about 45 minutes of that was live orchestra. But the rest of it was my MIDI form, just me MIDI sat here with my samples, you know. I think it sounds okay, but other people may not. You know, it's like it's, you have to get good at that. And I think you have to, you just have to be prepared to do everything yourself, you know, because all the networking stuff, all that stuff, you have to get to know people. It's so difficult. And I think, you know, there are a gazillion brilliant composers out there, way better than me, way better than me. Like, you know, they're just, it, they're just so many people. And it's just, how do you get, how do you get heard above the noise? Like, I'm a little bit fortunate because I've been doing it for 23 years, but it's still not, it's still hard for me. It's hard for everybody. Like, so many composers talk about feast and famine. Like it's going great. It's going terrible. It's going great. It's going terrible. You know, because <laughs> it just is, you know? Yeah. Um, I think the indie thing, I can't love the indie guys. Like I've got some, a good set. I mean, I've, Jimmy Hinson's a good friend of mine, big Jack circles. Danny Banosco's a good friend of mine. He's a Daniel from, uh, you know, C418 from uh, the Minecraft guy. You know, I know these people well, you know, and Danny said to me, why don't you come to the indie games part of, the, of GDC? I never used to go to that bit. You'd be surprised. So I, so I went along to it. And I liked it because I do like that slightly hippified image of let's just make a game, guys. We're all decided in bugger all. Let's, you know, I like that. You know, When I started at Rare, that's what it was like. It was guys that were sat in the bedrooms working on Spectrums and Assembler. They ended up being mm. great programmers at Rare back in the day. There was no college courses to do. You couldn't, it was nothing, no one showed you how to do it. You just picked it up yourself, right? Um, and I, I, I like that attitude. And so... I mean, I guess the indie guys had that thing where we're going to make a game in six months and five years later, they're still making it. So they'd learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard to get it right. I, I met quite a few guys that I'd went, oh yeah, I thought I'd do it in six months and here, I'm, here I am four years later, it's still not quite finished. Sure. You know, the games are hard. Um, yeah. I do like that indie attitude. It's great. So uh, some of the indie musicians are fantastic um, and they have a different, different way of looking at things than I do. I like all of that. And I think, I just, I think it's changed. I think te- technology's changed a lot. I think the fact they can use these great bloody huge sample libraries now, I just recently bought the Spitfire stuff. I'm like, it's amazing. You know? I mean, I had the Hollywood uh, brass strings and would, would be before that, which is really, really excellent. Mm-hmm. And the Spitfire field is a bit, is a step up, you know, and the, people are constantly bringing out these libraries that are just amazing. I mean, they still require quite a bit of massage to get to make it sound good. Mm-hmm. But I did see them the other day and they thought it was live auction. It wasn't it was just me sat playing here. I was quite, I was not flattered because, you know, I don't think I'm very good at that. It's amazing. But yeah, I, I, I did see something about, there was some music supervisor or something like that was sort of saying that you know, it's easy to see how you can almost tell how old the people are from the stuff they send in. So the, so the younger guys, it'll sound amazing. It'll sound like a, a real live orchestra, but there might, there might be a lot of content or real tunes there. Mm. The old the stuff has got a real melody and well harmonized and well orchestrated, but it sounds like shit. <laughs> you know, mm, interesting. all the guys like me can't work the gear, you know? So I think, you know, <laughs> At some point, we'll get to that middle ground where we can all do it a bit better. I am getting it. Yeah, it's, it is very different. I think, you know, there's so many different ways to do it. And you really can just do it sat at home with a laptop. It's possible. You know? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you said that the younger people tend to send in that stuff because I found that at least with newer games, there tends to be less of an emphasis on melody. I don't know if you've noticed that, but in a lot of AAA games, um, you know, Mario and Rabbids, uh, barring Mario and Rabbids, which has a phenomenal score, by the way, I really like it. And I love your arrangement of Peach's Castle. I had to tell you that. I was in tears doing that. I was in the 
it was so good. The winds are beautiful and it's like this, it's got this perfect Kirk Hope spin on it. It's, it's fantastic. So, uh, well done there. Um, but I have noticed that like what you said, like there has been this emphasis, this lack of emphasis on melody. Um, and it's, it's interesting because like you said, I grew up in the nineties, you had to make a good tune. You had to have good harmony in order for it to be memorable. Um, as kind of a part two to that first question I asked, I'm curious, what are some of the things that you maybe liked about being an in-house composer um, or that versus what you like as being a freelancer? Like what are the pros and cons been throughout your career of working in-house or working sort of for yourself? Well, I think working at Rare was, to me, was just just incredible. Like, to, you know, to get to the age, age of 33, what I was, and to get my, I never had a job in my life. I played in rock bands, all that stuff. And they did all that kind of thing from left university at 22. And then I ended up getting a job at Lorette. So I was 11 years. I was kind of playing in bands, off and on unemployment all over the place, you know, like that. Sometimes doing great, sometimes doing terrible. Living at home with my mother. I never moved out of home. I was there till 33, which is quite rare for people these days. Um, you know, like, but to get that job at that, at that point in time was just... One, it was, I don't know how I managed it. It was incredible. I mean, I don't know how I got in there. It's just ridiculous. But, you know, to do that, I did that for 12 years. So one of the great things about doing that was you got used to getting up in the morning, going to work and starting composing at nine in the morning. It's like any like a job, like any job of anybody. You go to the office, you turn your gear on, you start to write music. Sure. Nine till five, you did it nine till five for 12 years. So that's, for me, a great regime to get into. Sometimes creative types like to kind of, wait until the wee hours of the morning or in the afternoon when they feel relaxed. And it's like, that's not me. I'm a workman-like composer. I started, I started at 8.45, 8.30 these days. I start and write music from the word go. It might not be very good, but I'll start it straight away. I think that's a fantastic regime to get into. I don't have to wait for inspiration. I'm a, I'll, get, I'll work at it. I'm not, I'm not that kind of inspirational guy. You know, I just work at it till I think it sounds good. If it sounds good, I'm, you know, fingers crossed, right? So... That was a great thing to get into. And just being part of that whole Rare creative thing. So that was, a, for me, that was a golden years of Rare. I got there just as, you know, they had all that, all that success on the on the snares of Donkey Kong Country. Then NC4 came out. That was just amazing for Rare. And I kind of feel after that, it didn't go so well. And I left, I guess, for that reason. Um, you know, so, you know, and being around Tim Stamper and Chris Stamper was super special for me. I found Tim to be, with a mad genius, he could be equally wrong as uh, equally terribly wrong and equally amazingly right. And he had that way of saying, you know, crap, that's that's great. What about this? And there was always a what about this at the end of it. You go, oh yeah, that's a great. I should do that. You know, he always had something to say about something. And Greg Mills too. Like those guys, you know, it was fantastic working with them. Uh, you know, those those days were incredible for me. When Tim Stamp and Chris Stamper left the company, it lost its luster for me. It's just wannabes, right? And I, I don't want to be part of that. That was, that was, you know, that was a great thing to be part of. I, think, I kind of feel that. But the freelance thing is good because I get to make my own hours, right? I don't have to go anywhere. Like, I, I know that, I know that, you know, when, for me, writing music, I'm best between sort of somewhere in the morning, eight o'clock to nine o'clock till about two, and then I'm pretty crap. It's not, it's not, mm-hmm. worth, not worth me doing anymore until later on. So I'll stop then, have my lunch, go and get the kids from school, you know, mess around a bit, you know, do the groceries, whatever. And then, um, have dinner and then, you know, start at night. If I'm, I've got more work to do, you know, if I'm busy, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I can do that. But I, I, so like often in the afternoons, it's rare. I'd be sat not enough to sleep because I can't, I can't stay awake and I'm not very really good and all that, you know. So I get to choose my own hours and I know when I work best. 
so that's a good part of being a freelance part. And a bit of freelance is like, you know, it's, it is decent family. Oh, it's, I'm going fantastically well. Oh, I've got no work. Oh, it's going fantastically well. Oh, I've got no work, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a panicker. My, my wife constantly moans at me for panicking. But so when there's no work, I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose a house. I'm destitute, no money. <laughs> yeah. The kids, you know, et cetera. Yeah. You know, like that. So um, I'm, I'm very hot and cold. I'm, there's no, there's no middle ground for me. I'm either elated or depressed. There's no middle ground. <laughs> yeah. Is, but that's, the, isn't that the creative type though? I mean, I'm the same exact yeah. way. I, I totally I understand that. Yeah. I think you're right. I think the, I think creative types are like that. I don't think you ever get over that. I'm never going to yeah. get over I'm like, you know, you spend half, most of your time thinking what you've written is not that great. You know, you're mm-hmm. only really ever 75% happy with it. You're never, you're never going to get to the top of it. So, Cause you're always going to go, Oh, Oh, that's great. Let's listen to Harry Potter. Oh, John Williams is amazing. I'm shit. You know, <laughs> Well, I don't know if it's John Williams, man, that's not fair. I mean, you can't compare yourself to John Williams. That's, that's rough. That's a high yeah, bar right there. You have to, you know, to, I, I call it the curse of aspiration. I think that I'm never going to be absolutely happy because I'm never going to get to where I want to be ever. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. If I even get an Oscar, which I'm never going to do, that's, I'm still going to go, what's the next thing after that? What's after an Oscar? You know, like it's not going to mm-hmm. be, I'm never going to get to that point. I'm always going to be aspiring to the next thing. I can be better. I can do better. I can make myself better. I can write a better team, orchestrate better, be more elaborate, be more decorative. All that stuff that I want to do, you know, I don't, I'm never going to get there. Um, not in my not in my head. So I can, I, you know, it's like, it is a bit of a curse. And I kind of wish that I didn't have it sometimes. I can kind of go, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm happy. But mm-hmm. I'm never, I never get there. Do you find that you're your own worst critic when it comes to always, your music? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Like never, never, you know, never happy with it. You, you, got, you get to a point and go, I just can't make it any better. That's as good mm-hmm. as it can be. You know, and I just go, you know. So I, I do occasionally have moments when I kind of go, oh, I, I like that. That's good. I like it. You know, I'm really happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> we get those moments, you know, but sure. few between. So uh, I'm curious, when you uh, when you get a creative brief, you mentioned that you started, you start kind of working around 8.30 or 9 in the morning. When you, uh, let's say you get a new project and you're like, okay, here's, here's you know, civilization or you know viva pinata or something like that um do you like to start with um like i'm curious i'm I'm super curious in composers creative processes so i'm curious if you like to start you go right into the to the daw or at your piano and start writing music or do you you know communicate ask questions of the creative director do you sketch out ideas what's usually your process for getting started because i find that usually getting started, the first step is usually the hardest when it comes to like giant creative projects. Yeah, it's a bit of both really. I think that, you know, when is it rare, I kind of got known as being a bit of a bolchy, moody, miserable git. So <laughs> I just, I just kind of leave me alone to get on with it and go, I don't bother granny London moan, you know, yeah. like that. Uh, right. So, you know, I'm sure the guys at Rare will, will attest to that. But once you get out of that thing and you start to be a freelancer, you have to start to be nice to people. Uh, which, you know, I'm not very good at. I'm, I'm, I'm good at it now. Wasn't it? <laughs> days. So uh, you know, you just. I think it is hard to get that first thing off the ground, especially when you, when you don't know somebody. Like so, when you know, a lot of the work I do, I usually get uh, there's some tenuous connection to somebody somewhere, so they'll, I'll know somebody a little bit. So, I'll be, you know, but like when it came to Mario Rabbits, um, I didn't know Davide Soliani at all. Any of the guys, that was completely cold call from them to say, "Would you like to do it?" Mm. So. You know, getting that first tune out was difficult because it's like, one, it was like a new bunch of people. Two, it was Mario, for Christ's sake. Like, you know, how on earth do you approach doing a Mario game when Koji Kondo is a legend? Right. I'm not a legend. You know, it's like, how how do you do that? Like, he, you know, he's 
the king of everything. And I'm just kind of, you know, a little Padawan guy going, well, they do this, you know. So, I mean, that was hard. Um, but luckily, the first tune that I wrote, they quite liked it. So I was lucky mm-hmm. there. But, you know, you, you just, I remember I was flying back, I went to Paris to meet those guys. I wanted to meet me. So, and I remember flying back on the plane and I got an idea on the plane on the way home thinking that would be a good idea for that first look, that ancient garden, the first bit. It kind of mm-hmm. teeped in my head like that. Yeah. Um, it kind of worked out all right. I think any composer worth the soul, if someone says to you, all right, it's a frozen ice castle, straight away I'm going to think to myself, like, Celeste, you know, Glockenspiel, Pizzicato strings, things that are spiky and icy in my head, right? Right, or, right. Yeah, or if it's like, it's a lovely warm forest, like in like in the plains of Erythel in, in um, uh, Kingdom of Amalur. I was thinking, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I could just use just strings then. I might, I'm just going to use major chords only and make it all modal and just like, you know, all consecutive fifths all over the place that you're not supposed to do, but, you know, who cares? And I don't care. I'm, I'm not a school anymore. I can do what I like, you know. So <laughs> yeah. let's make it really major sounding, just strings and maybe just woodwinds, but all major chords, almost modal, just playing a tune with a triad, you know, and all that kind of thing. Mm. You, know, you do get little daft ideas like that and just and just go with it, see what so it works out. You know, I think all composers, when someone talks, I'm going to get an idea before they even touch the keyboard. But like, I often say, I'm not really a very intellectual composer. <laughs> I'm not really like that. Um, I'm a very sort of, I get instinctive. Uh, it, can yeah. easy, it can easily be wrong, but I just mess around until I hear something that I like, and then that's how it goes. I'll, I'll, I'll load up a sample or French horn, whatever it is, and mess around with it until I think I think it sounds good. I've, I've got a chord sequence or a melody that I like, and either can come first. Um, you know, I don't think there's any any hard and fast rules for anybody. You just do what you like. I think that I did spend a lot of time being classically trained. I did do harmony classes at, when I was at the uh, Royal Northern College of Music, and I was very bad at it. I failed the exam. That was for, for four years. You had to pass it within the four years, and I failed it three years out of four. So I was so bad at harmony. You know, doing figured bass and all that stuff. I kind of thought, what's mm. the point of this? You know, why do I need? To, I don't need to do it by numbers. I need to do it by my, by my ear. Having a good ear is the most important thing. So like, even though at college I was dreadful at harmony, the college orchestra rehearsed every Tuesday and Thursday morning. And I don't think I missed one of those mornings in four years. I went every Tuesday and Thursday morning from nine till one, whatever it was, watched the orchestra play everything from whatever they were playing, whether I liked it or not. And I feel that that taught me more than any amount of harmony exams or any amount of harmony teachers who were brilliant and I couldn't understand them. If you can hear it, you can write it. That's what I think. You just have to get stuck into it, get stuck in and have a go. If it's crap, just have another go. And have mm. another go until it gets better. You know, it's all, it's all you can do, really. I'm waffling on now, so I forgot the question. <laughs> no, you've you've answered it well. Um, I was just talking about kind of, uh, well, I don't even remember because I was so into your into what you were saying. So I don't even remember. But either way, it was good stuff. I, what you said, one thing you said reminded me of an interview that I actually read with Koji Kondo, where he said that he would always get ideas for melodies while he was doing things like riding his bike or taking a shower. And so you mentioned that you, that melody melody idea has kind of popped in your mind, which I think is a result of what you said. If you have a good inner ear, you know, if you if you have an ear that can detect good melodies and good harmonies and kind of internalize those, that kind of stuff happens. Do you find that a lot of your melodies will come to you when you're doing sort of benign tasks, like taking a shower or doing the groceries or what have sometimes, you? Sometimes I've got to say shower is my number one. I, I do get ideas in the shower. That's funny though. That, that's the kind of place that, well, so I kind of stand there and it just comes to me like that. Other places, not so much. I, I, you know, so, I'm, I, you know, sometimes it comes to me like that, but I'm not a sort of a great melody pop in my head. I'm more like, Here's a set of chords, and I'll try and weave a melody in between it. Mm, and in yeah. Head, this sounds a bit weird. In my head, I look for the odd note, the, the note that's a bit weird. That not, and even though it's not, like, so if I was playing C major and A flat major as a thing, I'd be looking at the E and the E flat. Hmm, okay. It's sort of, it, to me, it's sort of major E minor, even though it's not. Like, so I, that's, I'd be looking at that, that quality. That's, that I like that thing. 
So, mm. and, and so I look for that odd note. So, you know, and even though it's, and it's not odd, it's just the way that my brain looks at it, but that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. So I look for the, the slightly odd note that I can weave it in there and it's molded into the corsing and then it just sound, gives it that extra bit of quirkiness, that extra bit of catchiness. Mm-hmm. So it's slightly odd, but it fits. And even that isn't odd at all. I know I'm talking nonsense, but that's how my head looks at it. You know, and I, you know, I use the same bloody chord sequences over and over again. I just, I, yeah, I just do. I, I think you find stuff that you like and just do it, keep doing it, right? I'm not right, right. inventive. But I just like to, I like, I, I enjoy sculpting a tune into a harmony. I, I like to do that. That's one of my favorite things. That, 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 is, that is my most favorite thing. Actually, mm. orchestrating it into lots of parts for the orchestra and all that stuff is a bit of fine tedious. The bit mm. I most enjoy is a basic meat and potatoes, set of chords, melody, that's my favorite thing. Yeah, that is, that's my favorite thing as well. Well, I noticed uh, in, in your later work, it's very film score influenced, like in ukulele and even in Mario rabbits. Um, I hear lots of like chromatic medians and stuff like, like Danny Elfman, John Williams type film score stuff. Um, and, uh, and I remember in, a, in an interview a while back that I saw with you that you were thinking about pursuing maybe movies or films or that sort of thing. Are you still interested in that? And, and is that something that you're still pursuing in the future? Yeah, 100%. But it's hard, right? Hard to get in. I'm trying. Don't believe, believe me. I've, I've tried out for tons and tons of things. It just haven't got any of them. Right? Mm. It's hard. It's definitely hard. There's, you know, living in Hollywood over here, there's umpteen guys that are brilliant, right? Umpteen. Not umpteen, thousands of guys that are brilliant. You know, yeah. to break into that is hard. Like, I think that the only way someone like me would get into that, and I'm, I am trying super hard, is you need to know a director. He has a final say. Or maybe a producer might suggest you for that, you know. Or by some fluke, they may have heard a game you've worked on that they're like, who's that guy? I like that. Like Michael G. Kino with J.J. Uh, J. Abrams, who played Call of Duty or Medal of Honor, whatever it was. And so, I like that guy. Got him to do Alias, and then off he went, you know. So mm-hmm. there's not too many examples of that. It's like G Kino and I was like, probably. It's bloody hard. And I'm yeah. trying super hard to do it. And I've, you know, I've done some shorts now. I did the movie with a year before last, that King's Daughter, which is like it's a big 40 million budget movie, Pierce Brosnan, you know, William Hurt, that KS Godlaria, who's the girl out of Paris the Caribbean. It's a big thing. It just never came out. So it's oh. gathering dust. Uh, they're fighting over it. I've never, another thing I learned about movies is there's so many more people to fight with. Not me, but they all fight amongst themselves. <laughs> right, right. You know, so it, it may come out at some point. Yeah. I've done what since I've, I'm, there's a one I've just done at the moment called uh, the Wrong Rock, which is there with a guy called Mike Kaywood at Hero Mation. So, and he was one of the guys that worked at Rare, bizarrely enough, years ago. We worked, we, we hmm. know at Rare since we live in both live in LA. He's a, a guy who works in Hollywood now on, on movies as a previous guy. Hmm. He does his own stuff from time to time. So, I've just done the Wrong Rock for him, and it's great. It's a little short, 12, 14 minute animation. It's super high quality because he's been into work at DreamWorks and all over the place. Not coming out soon, we're just doing the festival run with that now. I'm also just doing a little movie for a guy called Joey Bravo, uh, who's uh, another director guy I've met. So, I mean, you know, I think these people are possibly stars of the future. But mm. I do think that's your best bet of trying to get into movies. Like, I have pitched for tons of Disney cartoons, DreamWorks stuff, Nickelodeon, you name it. I haven't got any of it. I've not even got a sniff, not even a callback to say, try again. Try, try again. Mm. And I, it's probably just that I'm crap, right? Whatever I write's not very good, I'm guessing. But, you know, you might, for these... For like for, for a Disney cartoon, you might get 80 or 90 composers going for it. Wow. Who all write, who all write a piece of music. Sometimes with Disney, you'll often get a little, you'll get a little animatics, the hand-drawn thing that you, or, or like DreamWorks to say, just chucking a reel. But yeah. Like 90 guys. And some of them submit two or three tunes at a time. So if you're that guy wow. looking for the tune, 
to go through all that stuff and find the one that you like. I don't, I don't want to do it. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. Hard. So, and just for you to stand out amongst the crowd there. Yeah. I think it's undoable. I mean, people do, do get it. I don't, I just, there's a, as a way for me. You know. Well, I'm confident that that I will see some Grant Kirkhope uh, uh, tunes in the cinema soon because I feel like your music is so well suited for film. Uh, you know, like when I li- even w- when you talked about the planar harmonies and kind of harmonizing fifths and three chords, kind of moving all over the place. John Williams does that all the time. Um, so I think you know, I think it's just a matter of time. But I, I mean, cons- you have my vote of confidence. I'll just say that. But well, you know, um, I, I, stole, I stole that idea from him. You know what I mean? Like, for me, my, I had a watershed moment, right, for me. Like, I always thought John Williams was just incredible. I, I couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't even understand it. So it was so, so elaborate. And when I came to do that game, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, I came to do the first boss piece. I think it was called Baylor. I thought, bollocks, I'm just going to have a go and let's have a crack at it. Mm-hmm. So for that piece, I just thought, I need to just try and just really go for every single, every single beat of music. I need to really just go for it. Like, add as much good ornamentation like John Williams does, get lots of glockenspiel in there, all that things that he does so well, mm-hmm. you know. So I really tried super hard and it sort of worked. I was like, bloody hell, I've, I've actually done something that I could, I, it's nowhere near as good as him, I'm, of course not, but it's definitely on the right track. Yeah. But that penny dropped and I kind of went, oh, you know what, maybe I can do something like that. Maybe I can write music of that complexity and still get it, get the point across with a melody. Because like, like, I think with John Williams, you know, People know him for his great big melodies because he's always on the money, right? But in between that, he's got like such elaborate, a million ideas in, in 30 seconds. You know, he just goes through so much stuff. I can't believe how he generates it all, you know? And then he he's does. still the big beat when it needs to be there. So I kind of call it his tread water music. So like he's got his big tune notes, like all over the place, back to the melody, all over the mm-hmm. place, back to the, you know, and outside, why can't I do that? So I just literally listened to the first three Harry Potter soundtracks in the car on the way to work and home back from work every single day for four years, literally. Wow. Like, you know, and maybe a bit of hook and as well, but like very small, like just those, because I find for me, and the Harry Potter, I love that so much because I love the books too, but the movies, but I love John Williams' scores, the East 3 scores for those movies. They're so mm. elaborate and they're so rich and harmonically rich and the ornamentation is amazing. It just is so complex and a bit, the tunes are always right on the money, you know, always a big theme, you know, so, I chose those three scores, particularly the first one, to like just to listen to over and over and over, and literally thousands of times. I'm not joking. I listened to it every day for four years. Wow. Um, and it taught me such a lot. And I'd pick up something nearly every day. I'd go, oh, I need to try that. I need to try that. So literally, I just nicked all of it from John Williams. Obviously, I can't do as well as him, but, but I tried. And it did mm-hmm. make a difference to me. I feel like my music, I think my scoring changed at that point, like around 20, 2010, around, somewhere around there. That's yeah. when I feel like I started to understand it a bit. And so I've, I've used all of that stuff that I've learned. I'm still listening to that stuff right now. I, don't, I, don't, I, I just listen to the same stuff over and over again. I'm really dull like that. So, mm-hmm. and I think it taught me an awful lot, an awful lot about orchestration. And then I, I started to go to, you know, I really can do some of this. It's not completely beyond me. A lot of it is, but some of it isn't, you know. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan myself of transcription, which is something that I sort of start, even if you just do it by ear or if you write it out in musical notation, I found that transcribing Koji Kondo songs, for example, has been incredible in my ability to really study how he crafts a melody. Kind of right. like what you said, rather than just say, oh, I'll never be as good as him and I'll never be, as, you know, whatever. But if you actually listen to his stuff and start to realize, okay, you know, he's 
he's just human. He is, he puts his pants on one leg at a time. He yeah. is amazing, but you know, and so you can start to see patterns of how he crafts melodies and that sort of thing. So, so I'm a, I think that's really cool that, that you kind of had that moment. Um, I understand this kind of shifting gears. I understand that you kind of have a funny story about meeting Shigeru Miyamoto. Well, it's a bit of a, it's a bit, it's a bit of a drunken cloud that is. Um, <laughs> well, if you, if you're, if you're inclined to share it, I would love to hear it. Well, it was like, it was, it was when the E3 was in Atlanta. The E3 went to Atlanta a couple of times or two or three times. I can't remember now. And we went to the thing. Mm-hmm. And like the thing we were half on my Nintendo, we always got to the Nintendo pre-E3 party. It was a bit of a, bit of a posh affair, you know. And I, I, it was at a museum, I think. And I've just got this bizarre memory of, um, what's that jazz guitar player? George Benson. I think he was, he was playing. I think he, he had a band that he was playing. I think, it, I might be wrong, I was drunk. Um <laughs> And we had this thing at Rare where we used to always try and pull each other's shorts. In the summertime, right? We used to all wear, all wear shorts. We used to always yeah. try and pull each other's shorts down in, in Barrow. That was just a, I know it's a crazy thing on the banjo team, not anywhere else. Yeah. I did so, that in high school. We used to call it pantsing. Yeah. And like at Rare, we used to have this thing called cake slap shorts down. So every time someone had a birthday at Rare, you, you, they had to bring the cake in. And at three o'clock, we'd all have tea. On the, just on the banjo team, we'd have tea at three, like you do in Britain. Mm-hmm. We'd all get a slice of cake. And if you stood there with your cake in your hand, Someone would come up and hit the guy like that. So the cake, <laughs> behind you and pull your shorts down to get, you get cake slap pants down, right? Yeah, so cool. that's, that's pretty go, great. Take a bill, you get shorts like that, these shorts will be down, you know. You have to tie your shorts, you have to tie your shorts in. Yeah. yeah. shorts really tight, really belted, so no one can get them down, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I just remember being in the, in the men's room at this bloody E3 thing. And I remember mm. George Andreas, who's a great friend of mine, he was, he was a, a assistant designer on Banjo Kazooie and he designed DK64. He's now a king in Spain. Um, and me and George are great mates. So, you know, we're all, you know. I remember him, he was at the urinal, and I remember trying to pull his trousers all the way down when he was at the urinal. And he just, yeah. he might have one hand, he might have held them up, I couldn't believe that. He's really strong, George is a muscle guy, right? And I was yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Pulling his trying to pull his trousers down, really drunk. And I looked around, and Mister Miyamoto was stood right there, looking. At me. <laughs> oh my gosh! And that's just that's just that drunken memory. And everyone kept video grant. Do you not see Mister Miyamoto? And I, I kind of can't sort of remember it. And that was it. That was, Did, that's, was he know, smi- so, Was he laughing at the joke, or was he just kind of staring I, I, wide-eyed? I think it was sort of his like sort of stony face. I, I bet you can't remember. I remember just prior to that, I was outside and I saw Tim talking to him, and I, Tim could do a little bit Japanese. And when he finished, I went across, I said, I said, you know, promise to me, Moto, I'm the composer for Banjo Kazooie. And I think he just couldn't tell what I was saying. I was trying mm. to say that, you know, you know, but he's kind of smiled and walked off. Um, <laughs> and then in the men's room on my knees, trying to get my friend's trousers down. So I didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't away. So, you know, I haven't seen him since. That's that. Yeah, well, clearly it didn't hurt your chances of uh, getting Mario and uh, Rabbit. So well, I, maybe, maybe all's told- well. Yeah, he's probably forgotten by then, right? Um, what's something, you know, that you can share maybe that you're working on? I know there's lots of NDA stuff, but something that you're either working on or looking forward to as you look down over the next few years. I can't share anything right now, I don't think. I don't think, you know, because um, it's all, you know, secret stuff as, as, as always. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I just want that chance, at that great big bloody blockbuster movie. I want that chance. If, I'm, if I completely ask it up, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I just want that chance. I want someone to go give give Kirko the chance at this. Yes. <laughs> you know, like I know that Illumination are making a Super Mario movie, right? And I mm-hmm. would love to do that. And I kind of feel that having worked with Nintendo, 
you know, with Murray Rabbits. I know how how protective they are of that IP, and rightly so. You know, sure. Um, the major my music was 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 respectful and all that stuff, and I, and I, I I totally understand. So they know that I would be the kind of guy who would be respectful to Mario, and I mm. could write, I could do that movie. You know, we were out of my street. Yeah. Um, also, you know, I guess that or something in the Harry Potter universe, kind of movie in the Harry Potter universe, I would literally kill to get the chance. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I would, I love that kind of magical fantasy. It's right up my street, that is. That, I, that's what I want. I want the chance. Mm-hmm. One chance. And if I ask it right up, never give it to me ever again, right? That's the thing that I want the most. So who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to blackmail to get Grant Kirkhope on the Mario movie? Well, it's Illumination, right? So I guess it's Chris Melandandry. He's the top guy at Illumination. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess they're in my universe. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm, I've told my agent, you just, if you just get me in that door to meet those mm. people, if I balls it up, fine. But I kind of feel that I must be the only Western composer to have touched Mario. I must, I must be, or there can't be very many. You know? I think, I think you are. I mean, because yeah. even even in the Mario offshoot games, um, in the ones where Koji Kondo doesn't score it, like of course the mainline Mario games are all done by Japanese composers at Nintendo. Always, yeah. So I kind of think that you know, I've got that. I've got all the cinematic sequences from Mario Rabbids, which, is, which probably makes it a little movie by itself, right? Like mm-hmm. stick to, to show that I, that I can write, I can write cinematic music, which is ridiculous because every every games composer can do that, right? It's not like sure. Sometimes you get that, oh, you do games. It's not like Game Boy anymore. It's not like that anymore. It's just like movies now. There's no difference, right? right? You might loop right. the music round, but that's maybe the only difference. You know, mm-hmm. it's still right for great, there's tons of great big orchestral composers in the, in the games world. They're right for Absolutely. Movies, movies, you know, so I kind of feel that if sometimes these movie types don't believe games guys can do it, just, I'm going to stick together all my little cinematic sequences from Mario Rabbit and say, there's a little movie about itself, right? Listen to that. It's, I, think, I think it's good enough. Proves I can do it, you know. Otherwise, I'm just going to get some AAA Hollywood guy. He maybe doesn't care. He just gets another AAA movie to do. Where I'm, if I got to do the Mario movie, I would pour my entire existence into writing that soundtrack. If I got the chance to write something Harry Potter, a movie, I would pour my entire existence into, into writing that thing. Yeah. You know, there'd be no room in my life for my wife or the kids or, or anything, or <laughs> money or rent or mortgage. I just do that and nothing else. Yeah. And like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how much more passionate I could be about it. I right. Put my entire existence into that project. Oh man! Well, I am really pulling for you. I really want this to happen. Now I feel like this needs to be like it's like poetic justice. I mean, it has to go to you and not you know a AAA composer. Like you know, listen to how much you care. Well, uh, Grant, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. I know you do a ton of interviews, so I appreciate you suffering one more. And no, uh, it's been. Yeah, but I always think to myself, I'm always happy to talk to anybody. Like, if anybody want to talk to me, it's an honor, really. You know, I'm just a bloke that writes tunes, for God's sake. So, you know, I'm, if, you want to, if you want to talk to me, it's all, it's all fine by me, you know. So, uh, no, thank you for asking me to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate your humility and, you know, your willingness to, to talk with people, especially younger guys in the industry and gals. So, uh, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to see if I can try to get you on the Mario movie with my limited contacts and completely lack of power. <laughs> yeah, that's one, right? That's one person, one advocate, right? One's, one's better than none, right? Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Composer Code. If you'd like to help make Composer Code the best it can be, consider supporting the show on patreon.com 
slash Composer Code. I'm planning to expand Composer Code beyond just a podcast into YouTube documentaries on specific games or composers, tutorials, blog posts, maybe even an actual published book one day. If this kind of content interests you, I'd love to make you a part of that journey. I also love hearing from my listeners, so if you have feedback or comments, or if you're a composer and you'd like to be on the show, definitely hit me up on Facebook, send me a DM on Twitter, or you could just send me an email, matt at mattkenyon.net. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.